Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt. I identify as a cis white gay man, and I'm also a Chicago resident. But most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is Caitlin Williams. Caitlin, thank you for coming. Would you mind introducing yourself, your role here at Howard Brown, and your pronouns? Sure. Uh, my name is Caitlin Williams. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I'm also the manager of the Substance Use Services Program at Howard Brown. So Substance Use Services, uh, what does that entail? That sounds like a big like umbrella term. What, what does that mean? Yeah, sure. It means a lot of things. So um, a lot of the causes and underlying influences of substance use are varied, Um, They can be genetic, environmental, social, systemic, structural, things like that. So um, the treatment options for folks should reflect that variety. So substance use services includes both um, like behavioral health services as well as medical intervention, medical support, social services support, things like that. So it is broad. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I've been learning uh, throughout my experience here in this role interviewing people on the podcast is that um, any health outcome is um, the, the, the outcome is never black and white. There's always so many more factors that go into somebody's um, health journey and the same holds true for um, uh, substance use. And I had to pause because I always part of the, like the introductory portion of every podcast I do is um, using the right terms. I'm, I'm not sure uh, is uh, addiction the right word? Is it substance use, substance ab- abuse? What, how, what do we? What kind of language do we prefer to use? Our brown when it comes yeah, to this. Yeah, that's a great question because I actually think language is really powerful. Um, so typically, when we're talking about, we're talking about a substance use disorder, substance use behaviors, um, or people who are using substances. Um, so you won't hear us using words like addict. Um, addiction is okay to use, you know, talk about addiction, but not everybody who is using a substance identifies with that uh, term, doesn't feel like that reflects their experience, um, which is something that I think Howard Brown does a really good job of on our team as we sort of meet people where they are at. Um, Historically, I think when people hear substance use treatment, they think of abstinence. Um, We are not an abstinence-only program, or they tend to think of 12-step programming. Those are probably the two most common thoughts that come up for folks, um, and hopefully here today we can talk about some other options that folks may be less familiar with um, that might be better equipped to meet where they are at in terms of their relationship with their substance use. That's excellently put, and um, I'm happy you brought that up because, um, yeah, like you said, language is very powerful, and and labeling someone as an, an addict or a substance abuser, those are both carry a lot of negative connotations, and Howard Brown really puts puts in a lot of effort to view um, clients or patients as like whole people and not just one, you know, uh, medical diagnoses or whatever. So uh, it, it totally makes sense. So that's um, good. We got our little uh, vocab lesson in at the beginning. So I, I brought you in to talk a little bit uh, specifically about harm reduction and then um, a specific drug that's I've been kind of hearing more about recently called Suboxone. But before we dive into that, um, as I've only been with Howard Brown for nine months, uh, and harm reduction is uh, one of the core like frameworks of, uh, of, of Howard Brown. Can you dive into what harm reduction means sort of to you? 
Yeah. So um, I'll use a quote that I, I love, and I will give credit where credit is due. There's someone named Monique Tula, who's the director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. And the definition she uses is harm reduction is the practice of unconditional love for people who use drugs. That's my favorite definition. Yeah. I'll give you a more technical one, um, which is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing the negative consequences associated with drug use. Um, you will also hear harm reduction referred to as a, like a social justice, justice movement based on the belief uh, in and respect for people who are using drugs. Gotcha. So it's, yeah, I can, I can see how, like when we talk about uh, treatment for people who are using drugs, it, you know, it comes across as a very like rehab or abstinence, like you said. And so harm reduction is kind of utilizing other techniques to minimize the negative impacts. What are those techniques, so to speak? Yeah, they're as varied as the reasons why people might be using. Um, so you can think of it more generally as just meeting people where they're at. That's how I tend to explain it. So wherever you're at. So do you want to totally abstain, which again, is kind of more how people think about it. Do you want to moderate or cut back, say, on a substance, all substances, maybe just one? You know, we have folks who come in and say, you know, I really want to uh, cut back on my alcohol use, but I don't want to change anything about my meth use. Um, so that's a harm reduction approach, too. Um, and then you may see folks who don't want to change anything about it, and they just want somebody to talk to, or they want to learn how to use safer. Um, so we provide services like that, too, with our syringe exchange program, where folks can come in and get syringes, they can get band-aids, tourniquets, uh, cooks, clean, it's free service, and they can come in as much as they want. So that would be a harm reduction strategy. Um, but it's basically understanding that there are some ways of using drugs that are safer than others, and if folks are interested in learning that information, we want to be able to provide it so that they have choices around their substance use. That, that makes so much sense to me when you explain it like that. Uh, previously, and, and I've heard like, you know, uh, people on Facebook comments under news sections or whatever, um, whenever harm reduction is brought up, people will always make the argument that it only, you know, makes it easier for people to, to use drugs or only facilitates quote unquote bad behavior. Um, what would you say to, to people that espouse that theory? Yeah, I'll say something that uh, I heard once when I was actually working in corrections, which is sort of my background, is in um, providing substance use services in a correctional environment. But somebody put it very bluntly, which is you can't treat a dead patient. And it's jarring, but it gets to the point of like, we really want to be providing care to people and, and meeting them where they're at and respecting their choices, their choices around their, their bodies and in this case, their substance use, right? So if somebody is coming in and saying, this is where I'm at with my care, we want to meet them there and provide it. Because um, otherwise, we're not able to treat people. And we'd rather want them coming into clinic for any kind of support um, and respecting their right to choose what to do, even if we may not personally agree with it. Um, that's kind of the neat thing about being in this role is it is a judgment. It's supposed to be a judgment-free role, right? And so if that's where someone is at, that's where they're at and I'm going to meet it. It's the same thing, um, and as a culture, we don't tend to have as much of a reaction to it, but it's the same thing with, say, like condom use. That's a harm reduction strategy, right, that gets in the way of, like, we're not teaching kids or adults, uh, like, you either ab abstain, like, no sex. You don't have any sex, or if you're having sex, it's for, you know, 
some other reason, right? Right. Like it, to, it's either no sex or you're having sex to knowingly like create a child. Yes, to create a child. And of course, there are many other reasons why people enjoy sexual behaviors that have nothing to do with producing children. And condom use is, is a harm reduction strategy or the use of other like dental dams, things like that. Um, Yeah, other prophylactics. It's the same thing with providing syringes, clean cooks, Band-Aids, any of that, or even information just on how to use those, or test strips. Like, how about you test your drugs before you use them? Because as I'm sure you've probably come across in your research, is a lot of drugs, and not just heroin, now we're seeing it in, in meth, in cocaine, are laced with fentanyl unknowingly, which is much more potent and leads to many more fatal overdoses unintentionally. So why not provide people with opportunities to test their drugs so that they know what's in them? And if it happens to pop dirty for fentanyl, then don't use that. I think it tends back to to think more around, I think what I can tie it to is just our perception of people who use drugs. But we use harm reduction strategies, seatbelts. Yeah. Right? I love that. Like the, you can drive, yeah. you can drive, and you can die. But would we? Would we like to use a seatbelt to maybe prevent death? Right. Um, the other thing with harm reduction too that's helpful is even if someone is not in the space to change their behavior, or it bides us some time to work with that person um, to maybe in, increase their motivation to stop using or reduce use. Right. Um, in the time that they are using harm reduction strategies, right? Um, Because use is on a continuum and risk is on a continuum, right? So if, but the thing about addiction is nobody does anything repeatedly over and over that doesn't have some sort of positive effect. That's just like not how humans work. We're not gonna do something over and over again where we get nothing positive out of it. So, you know, for many folks that might be, the substance use might provide an escape, it might, provide a relief from pain. It might provide a social um, like component you know, to their social life. And so if we can learn more about what motivates someone to use a substance, understand that person as an individual, and then say, hey, here are some other strategies for relieving pain. Here are some other strategies to feel comfortable in a social situation. It gives us time to work with a person to build those where then maybe they have options um, to choose, like, hey, today I'm not going to use today. Instead, I'm going to bring a friend along with me to the party to sort of help me feel more comfortable. Um, and we can work with somebody. But right now, you know, a lot of folks, when they come in, the substance use feels like their only option because they haven't had an opportunity to learn other ways of managing the things that work well with them um, and knowing that there are other options to get those needs met that don't have the same kind of harmful negative consequences. I, my brain is going 100, 100 miles an hour right now. Um, I we could absolutely take a tangent and kind of dive into like the the war on drugs and like the Reagan era era and like why our society is conditioned to view people who use drugs a certain way or view certain people who use certain drugs. But we'll kind of push that aside because I think that's a whole different uh, episode. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, but what seems more uh, relevant, especially given the city of Chicago. Um, where Howard Brown is based, in case you're listening and don't know that, um, that I, you know, we, we provide these harm reduction services, uh, but it strikes me that there are probably people that, uh, even if they know it exists, um, probably won't use them for fear of judgment, uh, retribution, legal ramifications. Um, is is does that is that does that hold true? Like, are we are the people who need harm reduction services the most? getting them, I guess, is, is what I mean to ask. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're striving for. I think there, 
are strategies that we can do to reduce sort of systemic or structural barriers to accessing care. And I think we've made a really good effort, can always continue to do that better. Um, and also recognizing that it is just really hard for anybody with any kind of substance use or mental health condition to seek help. There's a vulnerability in saying, there's this thing that I'm doing and like, I don't know if I wanna keep doing it. Maybe I do, maybe I don't, um, but I'd like to talk to somebody about it. There's a real vulnerability and courage in that, um, but it ultimately needs to come from that person. But there are certainly things we can do as an organization or as our team to make it easier for folks to do that. Um, but the reality is, is that we are living in a culture that, you know, if you talk about somebody who's using substance use, it conjures up a specific kind of negative image, and that's sort of what we're working against. And that's, that's a reality. That's not like some, you know, overreaction or sensitivity. Um, that's a real, a real thing. And if we're just talking sort of generally about medical systems, we're not the best spaces. We haven't responded really well to people with mental health and uh, substance use issues, and that's just the reality of it, and we can all learn to do better. Um, but as a system, the medical system has its areas of growth around that um, for a lot of a lot of subgroups, but particularly for people who are using substances, that's a real reality. And so it does take a lot of courage because you don't know until you know, which I think with Howard Brown is great is our providers are really good at talking to folks and meeting them where they're at and, and being non-judgmental and kind of shifting with them as someone's substance use goals shift over time, you know, that there is a consistency at Howard Brown that I think is really helpful and bodes well for them um, to be able to come in and see the same provider every time, to see the same recovery coach every week, um, that trust can build, and then that can open up, you know, somebody to other options or other ideas or other goals. Yeah, it, it strikes me that, like, communities that are probably most at risk for substance use um, are also the most, like, historically marginalized uh, by a healthcare system or, you know, a governmental system, governmental body. So it, it makes sense that, you know, even if we are providing these services um, or even that we are providing these services, people are still reluctant to, to kind of be vulnerable, like you said, and make that admission and ask for help. So um, turning corners a little bit, um, I've been hearing about this drug Suboxone. Am I saying that correctly? Suboxone? Yes, okay. Suboxone. What is it? Why do we want to talk about it? Uh, where do we use it? Run me through um, a Reader's Digest version, if you would. Okay, sure. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, this, the reasons for substance use are varied. Uh, Suboxone is part of a one way of treating substance use disorders referred to MAT, which stands for medication-assisted treatment. Um, so it's, a, it's another option that you can use in conjunction with other options, like say maybe a, a medical detox, therapy groups, things like that, peer groups, 12-step, um, whatever might be what you're into. Um, so, But it's a type of MAT specifically for opioids. It's a combination of two different drugs, buprenorphine and naloxone. And what they do is they work together to decrease the severity of withdrawal symptoms and also reduce a patient's dependence to opioids on a long-term basis. Um, so it's a mix of those things. And basically yeah. what you can think about it doing is that it helps restore function back to a person's life who has been using opioids. Um, so it makes it easier for someone to go about their day-to-day, -day, whatever they're doing, uh, going to yeah. work, hanging out with friends, other responsibilities, uh, all of these other factors that we know 
when people are able to engage in them, also help to improve recovery outcomes. So it makes it physically more manageable to do that. Um, and then it can come in two forms, a pill, uh, like a little tablet, or a film, both of which dissolve in the mouth. So it's pretty easy to, yeah. to take. It, is it like analogous at all to like a nicotine patch for somebody who's trying to quit smoking? Correct. Uh, a okay. nicotine patch would be considered a harm reduction strategy for oh, smoking. Okay. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So we, I mean, we do use harm reduction strategies all the time. They shouldn't be stigmatized. But um, so in essence, um, Suboxone is a little bit of an opiate, but it's on a, a very like controllable scale so that it reduces the symptoms of withdrawal, but a lot, but like. You don't, you're not going cold turkey when you're on So I'm glad time. you asked that question because that's yeah. a good clarifying. It's actually not an, it's an opioid antagonist, which okay. is different than an opioid. Um, so these are probably some good definitions just for us to kind of get yes. out there. So an opioid is also known as an opioid agonist. So these are medications that work on the opioid receptor in the brain. This is the pain blocking receptor in the brain. So these are things like heroin, morphine, codeine, hydrocodone, um, oxycodone. Those are all activate the pain blocking receptor in the brain, which then alters your perception of pain. And it also releases endorphins, which are the things that sort of mimic pleasure. They yeah. feel good. Um, this whole process is known as the opioid effect. Uh, and opioids can be from the poppy plant. So it's like morphine, or mm -hmm. they can be synthesized in a lab. That's like fentanyl. Gotcha. Um, so you could have two, there's kind of two different classes. Mm -hmm. uh, Suboxone, on the other hand, is an opioid antagonist. So this medication, when taken, will actually negate the effects of any opioid by preventing them from acting on those pain receptors. Gotcha. So like a block almost. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's say you're using opioids. You... What, so you would take Suboxone and nothing else in order to reduce your dependence on opioids? Or would you like continue taking opioids but add in Suboxone to reduce, you know, you know, does that question make sense? Like is, because like when a smoker decides to use a nicotine patch, usually they're like, they, they stop smoking entirely and they put on a patch to like kind of replace the nicotine that they were getting from an actual cigarette, but it allows them to reduce the other harmful side effects is... Does Suboxone work in the same way or do they continue possibly using opioids and use Suboxone at the same time? Maybe that's too in-depth, but... No, that's a good question. So um, you won't really have the same effect if you were to use, say, heroin or some other opioid while taking Suboxone because gotcha. it, it blocks it. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, Suboxone can be seen also as a harm reduction strategy to, present, to prevent overdose. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit different, but the reason why... Uh, I think Suboxone can be a better MAT for opioid use is that uh, unlike methadone, which is another, I think people tend to hear about methadone a lot. Yeah, I hear like methadone clinics and things. Yeah. yeah. So methadone can actually still be pretty habit forming and have some negative side effects, both physically and psychologically, if you don't have mm -hmm. it. Um, and we don't see those kinds of effects with Suboxone. So the side effects are significantly decreased. And if gotcha. they are, they're more physical than um, like psychological. Yeah. And it's not habit forming in the way that methadone is. So it's a, it's a little bit different, although they both are MATs for opioids. Sorry, I'm asking so like detailed questions about this one. So uh, Suboxone now makes sense to me as, as far as like it, its purpose, why we would prescribe it. Um, how does somebody go about getting it? Because we, I've, I found across a lot of um, our healthcare system, the most valuable uh, and helpful medications are also sometimes hardest to get. Um, is Suboxone something that 
um, you need a prescription for, or is it because uh, later on we'll talk about Narcan and how you know we have a standing order for it um, in the state of Illinois. Is is Suboxone similar, or is it you know how difficult is it to get if somebody's in need of it? Yeah, Suboxone does require a prescription. Um, So unlike Narcan, which you can walk into most Walgreens, CVS, you can walk into those and and request it. Um, Typically in in an injection form, it's also a nasal form for Narcan. But with Suboxone, it does require a prescription and it needs to be monitored with a medical provider. So for at least at Howard Brown, what folks will do is they can come here. They don't have to be established a, an established primary care patient to be order in order to get Suboxone here, although most uh, patients do prefer to do that just because it's nice to kind of have a one-stop shop where you can get your primary care, your substance use treatment, and any other needs sort of all in one spot. So for here, it does require uh, an appointment with one of our providers who prescribes Suboxone. So you do have to go through like a training to be able to prescribe mm-hmm. it. Um, and we train providers to on just like how to talk to folks about their use, how to meet them where they're at. That's all part of our training. But yeah, folks will come in, they'll meet with a medical provider who can do Suboxone prescriptions. They'll also meet with a recovery coach. We have a team of great coaches. Those are folks with lived experience, their peers. It's a different kind of support than say the other things we've talked about, like therapy or um, groups, things like that. Mm. Uh, It is a different kind of support. Folks can come into Howard Brown and request any combination of the different services we provide. But what's nice is that the recovery coaches are with them from start to finish during the whole process. Uh, we always tell folks they're always welcome to come back no matter what happens. And for a lot of folks, it's easier to reach out to a peer, to a peer coach or recovery coach in that process. But they would meet with the provider. They talk about how much they're using, when was the last time they used, um, and then from there would do what's called an induction, which is starting the Suboxone, and then you're sort of on it um, long term. And you you might need to kind of tweak with the dosage, depending mm-hmm. on how much you've been using historically. But that is all done with the support of a medical provider and a peer recovery coach. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, it, it's still pretty regulated, obviously, for good reason. Um, that leads me to my next question. As far as, like, logistics for Suboxone, uh, PrEP is, like, a once-a-day pill, obviously, and that's harm reduction strategy, is Suboxone kind of rigorous to take? Is it hard to keep patients adhering to like a schedule with it? Or is it pretty straightforward? Yeah, I think it's pretty straightforward. So like I said, it's either a film or a tablet that you place in your mouth, typically under the tongue, tongue, and it dissolves. Okay. Uh, There are other options. So for some folks, taking a daily medication can have come with its challenges. And so if that's something that's voiced in the appointment, we do have some other options or Sublicade, which is a long-term injectable MAT for opioids. That is an option for folks who may just, for whatever reason, have difficulty remembering to take a tablet or a film every day. But there are options. But yeah, it's pretty easy as long as that you can set, you know, we've worked with folks to set a reminder in your phone or the coaches can kind of help in the beginning with that Mm -hmm. um, until it becomes more of a a habit for them to take. Gotcha. Other than that, that's about it. Okay. That that makes sense. Yeah. I asked because I, uh, right before we started recording, um, saw some message about uh, injectable prep and I wondered, um, and, and that was the case with a lot of uh, HIV treatment early on was getting, um, 
these treatments or pills or whatever it was down to uh, a form that was uh, easy to use. Uh, and sometimes with more uh, advanced medications, it involves complicated timing or taking with food. And sometimes the, the populations that these medications are designed to help don't have uh, those resources either, you know, I wake up every day for at 8 a.m. for work and then I take my pills in the morning. That's not a given for everybody or, you know, uh, some people might be facing housing insecurity, things like that. So I was I was curious if there was, you know, an injectable or a long term solution uh, for people that might not be able to adhere to a daily schedule. But that's good to hear. So we know what uh, Suboxone is designed to treat, what kinds of uh, communities or populations are most impacted either historically or currently by the opiate addiction because i've it's it's a it's a quote-unquote epidemic that i've been seeing more and more in the news as prescription painkillers rise in uh, ease of access and use and things like that um and i've been maybe it was just it's just like the small midwest town that i came from but i uh always heard that like you know, it's your it's your brother, it's your neighbor down the road who could be addicted to to opiates and stuff. Um, I don't think that that's still the population that's most impacted by um, uh, opiate use. Is back to my original question: what what populations <laughs> or communities are most are uh, most impacted? Yeah, so I think it is true that any anybody is vulnerable can be potentially vulnerable to. Um, substance use issues I think that's a that's a very real thing where probably that's sort of like it's your anybody yeah. and you start naming whoever you know yeah. uh, it but, just reminded me of like dare programming like uh, uh, do you remember the old like say no to drugs like things of yes, like that you campaign know, that failed miserably yes, yeah, I yeah that I see campaign. more drug users wearing shirts of than anything else <laughs> yeah it just it just reminded me of that very like you know, this is a, a a problem that's like affecting our small town white community, and I was like, "Is it? I don't, I don't know." So, anyways, I interrupted to keep talking. Yeah, I mean, we could certainly go into actually a whole conversation just about the perception of opioid use across different communities, and yeah. uh, you know, when did MAT become acceptable? There's a whole that's probably a whole another podcast too yeah. that you and I could talk about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly anybody can potentially find themselves struggling with an addiction issue. Um, and as we know, the pandemic exacerbated addiction, uh, overdose, fatal overdoses. So all of that is very true. But what we do know, and part of why this is such an important issue at Howard Brown, has to come down to health disparities, is that there are particular vulnerable groups, marginalized groups, where we just see higher rates of substance use due to sort of systemic and structural barriers. Um, one of those groups is the LGBTQ community. This is why we're doing this at Howard Brown. Um, certainly, we see some other stats. The stats are limited, um, either in how they collect data. So for example, we tend to see in the data that the male identified folks are more impacted than female folks. The, the data is collected in the binary. So it doesn't really tell us a lot unless specifically a, a research group is going to go out and study that. But right. um, but yeah, so typically older folks too, in their like 40s, 50s, 60s, we tend to see higher rates, um, especially in terms of overdose. Like who is, who is actually dying from overdoses? What we see is male identified folks of the LGBTQ population. Those who are using heroin or fentanyl, Although we are seeing more overdoses related to prescription pills, which I think that is in line with sort of what we're, we're seeing the prescription mm -hmm. pill problem more. Um, and we do see more fatal overdoses in black populations. So these are sort of here at Howard Brown, we're working to sort of reach folks who might be 
uh, more vulnerable to the negative impacts of substance use. Um, and for our population, a lot of the things that we're seeing have to do with minority stress um, that comes from being in a marginalized population. So things like isolation, uh, stigma, discrimination, loss, lack of affirming medical care, which we talked about already, um, and just trauma. What we see a lot of times in folks who are using substances is histories of trauma, and it's a, it's a way that folks can find relief, even if temporary, from that pain. Um, and what we know about the population is that they have higher rates of trauma, including hate crimes, intimate partner violence, things like that. So that's why it's important to us at Howard Brown to go out and reach folks who may be more vulnerable. Besides Suboxone, what other strategies does Howard Brown have um, to help people who, who might be struggling with substance abuse? I know we kind of touched on that briefly in the beginning, so it might be just be echoing what you said. But. Okay. Well, we'll just do a quick run yeah. through in yeah. case folks are interested in what their options are. Yeah. And again, folks can kind of cherry pick and do whatever combination of things will meet you where you're at. Um, but like I said, one of the nice things about Howard Brown is our real interdisciplinary team approach. So it is peer coaches, it is therapists, it's social services, medical, psychiatry. Um, so it is kind of that one-stop shop. But uh, in addition to Suboxone, we do have other forms of MAT, um, Sublocade, which we talked about, which is long-term injectable for opioids. We also have something called Vivitrol, which is long-term injectable for alcohol use, works um, in a similar way to reduce cravings, things like that. Uh, the syringe exchange program we talked a little bit about, um, which is operating out of our 55th location in Hyde Park, Monday through Friday, and also at our counseling center up on the north side. Uh, and that one's Wednesdays and Thursdays out of the counseling center, and those hours can be found on the website. Awesome. Um, and again, at those syringes, it's not only the syringes, but you can get Narcan, you can get safer use kits, test strips, tourniquets, band-aids, things like that. Uh, we talked about individual and group therapy. Uh, the folks on our team have a wide therapeutic lenses and techniques, um, and we use both abstinence and harm reduction strategies, depending on what the patient's goals are. We'll meet them there. The recovery coaching we talked about, which is nice. It's like self-directed, just talking to somebody with lived experience who gets it. Um, yeah. People like the coaching because they don't need to sugarcoat anything. They don't need to change the way they talk. They can just kind of keep it real and, and talk with a coach. So the coaching is great. And then the last resource is our uh, RWP line, which is Recovering with Pride. I actually don't even think I said our team name. We're the Recovering <laughs> with Pride team. Um, and that is a 24-7 line that folks can call. It's not just for patients. We have parents, friends, partners, hospitals calling, um, and we can help either link folks to treatment with us, link them somewhere else if we, maybe we're not the right level of care. So we can link them to a detox, an inpatient program, um, sober living, uh, or sometimes people just have questions or concerns about themselves or a loved one, and we will call them back that same day and do answer whatever we can answer and help wherever we can. So that's just a good sort of like open resource for people. Yeah, it, um, um, and I'll put all of the information, including the Recovering with Pride hotline, um, in the description below. So if anybody's interested, uh, it will be the information <clears throat> will be there for you. So. Uh, any parting words to kind of sum up this episode on harm reduction and substance dependence uh, or substance use um, that you want to kind of send home with the audience? Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, like, if you're someone who is thinking that you might want to talk about somebody with their substance use, we're here for you. And we're not, we don't have judgment. We don't have our own goals around it. And it takes a lot of courage to reach out and, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. We're here to help. 
Uh, and people struggle in different ways. And for some people, that looks like substance use. For other people, it looks like other things. But we're specifically here to help. Um, so yeah, reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming and sharing uh, your wealth of knowledge with us. And that has been our episode about Suboxone, Narcan, Harm Reduction, and Needle Exchange Program. If you're interested in anything we spoke about in this episode, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.